episode three of the Prolific Christian Writer Podcast. Today, Larry Osborne stops by the show. You don't want to miss this one. Welcome to the Prolific Christian Writer Podcast, where we believe you can change the world with your words. Follow an indie author and pastor and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on how you can honor Christ and change the world by writing fast, writing often, and writing well. I'm your host, Tian Doan. Now let's get on with today's show. Well, on today's uh, show, we have Larry Osborne. Let me give you a little bio on our guest today. Uh, Larry Osborne is a senior and teaching pastor at North Coast Church. Uh, Under his leadership, the church has grown from 128 people to over 12,000 on a weekend. Uh, He is most probably most well-known for being the pioneer of the multi-sites video venue movement, and uh, North Coast has five sites with uh, 49 services in a weekend. Uh, Larry has a a passion for leadership, spiritual formation, and discipleship, and uh, he's written 10 books, and I've read uh, probably four or five of these books. Larry and I went to the same school. We actually have the same degrees. We Master's of Divinity and a doctorate from Talbot School of Theology. He uh, lives in Oceanside with his wife. They have three uh, children and a quiver full of grandkids. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Great. Glad to be with you. Uh, Larry, those are uh, some amazing accolades, but uh, the one thing I remember the most about you is carne asada tacos. Um, A few years back, Larry, you invited a bunch of us younger leaders to your home, and you grilled up carne asada asada tacos uh, for us, and it was just a a great time of mentoring. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I'll talk to Nate's used to make myself some food. (laughs) So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, your writing process, and I'm going to send some hard-hitting questions your way. Uh, so if you're ready, um, you know, what I really want to know from you is this. Um, what did you think about the Dodgers last night? <laughs> did you watch that game? You are absolutely time stamping uh, this uh, little podcast. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, been a, an amazing series. Okay. So, remember, I'm down in San Diego, so are I'm you? a suffering Padre fan. Yeah, but, Padres. Uh, good, good for the Dodgers. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm down with that. Yeah, Dodgers just won Game Six last night. Game Seven is tonight. So whether you're catching this uh, later on or not, um, yes, this is time stamped. Um, so we we have a lot to, to talk about. Uh, this podcast is specifically for uh, Christian writers, and uh, the goal is to help Christian writers make a difference with their writing, make a difference uh, with their with their words. And uh, before we get into your specific writing and, and process. Can you tell us about a little bit about your, your background, your upbringing, and how that shaped you? Sure. Yeah, we're all shaped by our upbringing, uh, obviously. Uh, I came to Jesus a little bit later for a kid that was raised in an outstanding Christian home. Uh, I came right before the senior year of high school. Up till then, I didn't really want much to do with Jesus because I confused Jesus and the church. And the churches I had grown up in were just very legalistic. They had more rules than uh, Jesus could have thought of far more concerned with what was in their refrigerator instead of what was in somebody's heart. Uh, And so I kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. But I was very blessed. I had just great parents, just salt-of-the-earth parents, by the grace of God, still alive today and doing well. And so uh, what that did is that left me without a father wound, only a church wound. 
So when I found out I could be a pastor and still be Larry, uh, I started teaching Bible studies and headed that direction. I was probably 19 years old and never changed my mind. I just never had any idea uh, that you could uh, um, just just be you and uh, shepherd whoever it is God brought to you and be a pastor that way. I had all these stereotypes. So that's kind of a little bit of my background. Great blessing of lots of Bible as a kid. Uh, I think even the blessing of a dysfunctional church helped me decide what North Coast would not be. Uh, I, I find God uses the best and the worst in your background usually to shape uh, his calling in your life. So that's a little bit of my background. That's great. Great. Larry, tell us about your, your writing journey. How did you get started? You've you written, uh, is it 10 books? I think it's 10, uh, maybe 11. So I, I don't sit down and count them all. <laughs> but, uh, so so tell us about it. I mean, you, you're a busy guy. You, you're, uh, uh, you, you uh, lead a church. Uh, a lot of You speak all over the place and mentor. You have your own conferences. And, uh, and then you, you've been writing quite a bit. So tell us about the, the writing journey. Yeah, I think in the writing journey, I get asked uh, individually by people a lot about it, trying to figure out their their own thing and whether they want to write or not. And what I always point out to people is there's two kinds of writers. There's people who write to a deadline and people who write to discover themselves. And I, I find a lot of people who write to dis- discover themselves have a dream of being an author that maybe is slightly uh, not realistic. Uh, they can write and self-publish, which is, you know, a very good model to go down or whatever. But uh, I think the first thing an author has to figure out is what am I writing uh, for and who am I writing to? Uh, I am an extrovert. So I have I I probably have 30 journals all with three pages in them. Uh, I do not write to discover myself like a classic extrovert. I speak to discover myself and then see how the world responds to it. So what I found for me over the years is that if I have a deadline, and uh, uh, then something I want to say that I think uh, is important to be heard, then writing comes reasonably easy to me. But I actually always write in the cracks. Uh, again, that's another thing that's not spoken about often enough at a, a writer's conference or something. You tend to get extroverts who are type A personalities, and they give you one type of writing. Uh, and that would be like write every day, et cetera. And then you find out, well, that's how they read. That's how they journal. That's how they do everything. So for me, my writing is very much a reflection of who I am as a person. Uh, I'm a, a Myers-Briggs P, if you're familiar with that, which means I leave my options open. But uh, your personality is never an excuse to leave people hurting. So that doesn't mean you can procrastinate or fail to meet deadlines. But what it does mean is I don't live on a, a tight schedule. That sucks all the life out of me. So uh, what happened is I got a request to write an article for a thing called Leadership Journal. I did, was well-received, wrote a few more. They were well-received, and then suddenly I had publishers asking me if I would consider writing a book. Was that the uh, Unity Factor? uh, The Unity Factor was my very first book. It was made up of some articles that came out of uh, Leadership Journal back when that was a a big deal uh, journal, and uh, then we added some chapters to it. And I was writing my third book when my oldest son was seven. He said, I don't like it when dad writes. He doesn't play with me. So I took 13 years off, uh, believing that my calling to be a dad and a pastor was more important than my potential to write books. Uh, and so I waited till all the kids were in college, and I went back to it. So in the 
mixture of all the different things you do. Uh, I actually looked at your website uh, and saw your speaking engagements for 2018. And just looking at all those dates makes me tired. And then you're preaching at your church, and you have your own conferences, and you're—I know you're mentoring, and coaching pastors on the side. Uh, where does the writing part blend? Like, where do you see that? Well, it literally falls under the cracks, and I, I didn't do the heavy. The, a lot of speaking and writing they go together. So during that time where I felt God called me to focus on my kids, so they were all in college. I really didn't do all that much speaking. I might do four or five things a year maximum. Uh, it was when the nest was empty. A lot of those trips, you know, they look like, wow, how do you do that? But if you fly a lot, you're probably at the front of the plane. You've got your your routines down. Uh, I can get a lot of work done on the plane. My wife likes not, have me, not having me around for a day or two. She doesn't even take care of the baby. Uh, so that, that that's kind of a reality that people don't necessarily see as you see stations in life. But then and now I still I, I call it writing in the cracks. Uh, I'm a person who uh, I tell people I'm a beaver. I build dams. When all the dams are built, I knock them down to build some more. Uh, my hobbies are piddling around with stuff, you know, not not golfing or just sitting around and, quote, resting. Uh, but uh, when life happens, a crisis or an opportunity, you have to have margin built in your life. So I write in the margin. And that's why once in a while I've been uh, my last book, uh, uh, Thriving in Babylon, last discipleship book. I've had Lead Like a Shepherd's coming out since then. But uh, Thriving in Babylon came out a year late for that very reason. We had some incredible opportunities open up here at North Coast. And I just had to tell the publisher, you're third on my list. Uh, and so I'll get to this book in the cracks when I can. But right now, God's opened up some really cool opportunities with uh, some multiple campuses, and that's where my energy needs to be. So uh, you said third on your list. You, would you, um, other than a family and God, of course, uh, what about, uh, so would you say it's your local church uh, yeah. first? Abs- absolutely. And, and I've had a teaching team here at North Coast since you're 185, so that gives you more margin. Uh, philosophically, I believe that a church is probably better off with multiple speakers, so the weeks I'm not teaching, I gain time to uh, uh, work on leadership and or do a little bit of writing. Uh, I always tell people you can only wake up thinking about one thing. And the weeks I preach in the back of my mind is a message. The weeks I don't preach, it's why is our website so bad? <laughs> or uh, or how, what am I going to put in this chapter? So you can do multiple things, but usually there's a primary thing each week and so not preaching every single week has always given me more margin and breadth than I, I think a lot of pastors have. So uh, in your in your books, uh, what uh, what is your goal for your, your writing? It seems like you have two different um, avenues. You're kind of known for the Sticky Church uh, uh, books, which is kind of church organization leadership, uh, but there's a, a second kind of, uh, avenue, which is discipleship, spiritual formation, kind of two different, I don't know, audiences. So like, what is your goal for writing? Who do you write for? <laughs> well, actually, the publishers hate the fact of uh, having that kind of mixed focus because they say I, I mess up my, quote, brand. Uh, people don't know whether I'm a mystery writer or write cookbooks. Um, yeah. But I feel both are important. I think leadership without discipleship is an absolute waste of time. And uh, I think discipleship without understanding leadership is nothing more than an idealistic pipe dream. So 
I've chosen to write in both areas rather than say, no, I'm going to have a brand, if you will, to use publisher speak of just one thing. Uh, and so that's really why I write on both. I have a passion for discipleship. That's why I'm a pastor. And I have a gift for leadership, which is why I mentor and train and write in those areas. But um, I think both are important. And I just see it as uh, kind of the two rails that my life is supposed to run on. I'm not a monorail. I'm more like a train. And uh, it, it will tip over if I focus on only one side. Actually, I think the church does as well. If all we focus on is is if our definition of discipleship is the top rung is a leader, uh, we throw away a whole lot of people. There's a leadership development and a discipleship, which is just simply the next step of obedience wherever you are. Those are the two rungs the church is supposed to run on. They've never meant to be a monorail. And I think my writing reflects that. You you uh, said two things that was very interesting. You, you talked about you have a passion for one thing and a gift for another thing. How do you distinguish that? What 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 is the... Uh, well, difference in, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, obviously, wouldn't have a church of 12,000 plus and all the people listening online to sermons and all that if I didn't have a gift also for discipleship. But if you put them both on a table and said you get to pick one, I'd pick discipleship. Uh, I'm a natural leader. Uh, I didn't choose to become somewhat of a leadership guru in the body of Christ and mentoring and all that. I just got asked to do it. Um, if you were to have asked me early on in my ministry career, I would have rather been known as a great Bible teacher, writing commentaries or something like that. I had no real interest to be known as a, a leader, but that's that's what people kept coming for. So I, obviously there's a giftedness in both, or you don't have, quote, success in both, but it's not really my passion. No. So you you preach, you speak uh, on the the main stage at big conferences. You do a lot of uh, church consultations. You're working with leaders a lot in a very verbal for, uh, format. How does that relate to the writing process for you? It doesn't relate much to the writing process outside of occasionally. Like the uh, uh, I've got a book coming out uh, in uh, April of 2018 that uh, it's now finished, but you're going through all those last process stuff. It's called Lead Like a Shepherd. And that came out of some talks I gave on 1 Peter 5 and then turning back over to when he says lead like a shepherd, they would have had the 23rd Psalm in their mind, obviously, as the quintessential uh, shepherd passage in the scriptures. So I dig into that and say, what does the heart of a shepherd really look like? What are the actions of a shepherd? So unlike many of my leadership books, which are tactical, uh, sticky team, sticky church, sticky leaders, you know, how to do something. That's really, this one's on the heart of a leader. So in that sense, the uh, auditory uh, spoken word led to the seed thought of the written word. But a, a book is obviously much more in-depth than you would give in any 45-minute talk. Uh, and so, and, and one of the things I think a lot of people who are speakers don't realize is that speaking and writing are two different languages. Uh, I happen to be bilingual. Let's talk yeah. about that, that. Yeah, very few people speak and write the same. There was a guy named Chuck Swindoll, very well-known and famous, and and his manuscript and his books were pretty much the same because his, his syntax and flow and was just amazingly they fit. But as a speaker, I'm very conversational. As a writer, I'm conversational. I'm told people can hear my voice uh, strongly. Uh, but my... Um, 
My vocabulary is larger in the written word. My uh, attention to cadence is much more uh, careful uh, in the written word. A lot of scripts don't work very well uh, as, as, as a book or as an article. You have to clean them up quite a bit. Which do you uh, prefer as a method of communication, and what, and what are the strengths of, of each? My favorite thing is probably Q&A because you don't prep. Uh, uh, I, I think in sound bites and word pictures, uh, and so it comes off, I know, fairly well and is helpful to people. Uh, my second most favorite would probably be uh, giving a talk, and my least favorite would be writing. But I still enjoy the process most of the time, you know. What part of it? Of what part of it do you? Uh, the writing process. What part of it is is enjoyable, and which is painful for you? What's enjoyable is in the written word. Um, you have to be more careful. That thing's going to live for a long time. So I many of my pages. Uh, you know, people. Let me step back and say it this way. Authors give great ideas that are cleaned up by editors or they give a pretty finished package. I give a very finished package. What you read in one of my books is very, very, very close to what I turned in. I don't get many edits. And so that part of the process I like. A page might go through 50 edits, just its flow. Is that really the right way to say it? Is it just causing your eyes to roll back? We've all read things that were too wordy. and so I enjoy that process of honing it down until, man, that's really, that's exactly right. I don't use a manuscript when I speak, so there's none of that going on when I speak. So I kind of like the idea of taking an idea and saying, man, this is the best way I know how to articulate it. I've never done that on a Q&A, and I've never done that uh, on a presentation that's verbal. You uh, actually have a very large platform and you, you put your ideas out there in multiple ways. Uh, where do you see the, your, your written work being a part of, of, of your message, your legacy moving forward? Because, you know, you know after you're gone, your, your books are going to uh, uh, live on and continue. And people that might not even know you or yeah. met you or heard you uh, will, will benefit, you know, from these books. Yeah. Well, I would push back a little on the idea of legacy. We're all too self-important. People think millennials are because they want a life-changing, world-changing job. But no, the whole culture is because all the boomers are talking about legacy. And I always tell my friends, I go, dude, you do not have a legacy. Nobody remembers a great-great-grandpa. Uh, and we're, most of us are hardly ever reading books that are over 40 years old. you know. So, But I- extending influence, now that's a different thing. So I don't really write to have a legacy because culture changes so much. I doubt anybody will read any of my books 50, 60 years from now, uh, be they discipleship or leadership. But in the written word, I can reach lots of people I have never spoken to. And when they hear that, I get invited to speak to people I wouldn't have spoken to if they hadn't had the written word. So there's almost a flywheel that goes on. Uh, In fact, publishers, when they're doing what's called acquisition, they always want to know if you have something to say first, but the very second thing is what's your platform? Uh, because if you don't have a platform, they can't sell the books. Uh, but it's it's a chicken and egg thing because the books create the platform. I mean, they just play on each other. So I, I think they're both vitally important if you want to have influence. Like what books have influence, not just yeah, you as a person, but your writing? 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, because uh, those are two really different questions. The ones yeah. that influenced me were different than the ones like I like the way that person writes. Uh, now, the ones where I went, I like the way that person writes, they influenced me, but they weren't always the biggest ones. Uh, early guy was a guy named Ben Patterson. Uh, he wrote succinctly, uh, and he wrote clearly, and he had uh, just good examples. Uh, an example of one that I like to read, but I, uh, whenever I try to write like doesn't work, would be like a, a Glad, um, Gladwell. Gladwell. Yeah. I mean, these really, I, one of my books, Thriving in Babylon, I tried to l write more that style, seven really long chapters. And it just wasn't right. And they, I gave it to the uh, publisher and they said, oh, this is really good because I've written enough, they're kind. Uh, but they said, can we make the first chapter two chapters? And I said, sure, but give me the book back for 30 days. And I turned it into 20, 21 chapters. And I went, man, Thriving in Babylon, that's a good book. I'm proud of it. Whereas what I turned in wasn't. So uh, what I found is, is, is people who wrote succinctly, often magazine articles, uh, more of a uh, USA Today than a Christianity Today uh, with its long paragraphs, uh, those, those read well to me. Uh, I found books that I could read on a flight were my favorites. You know, uh, If I could read it in three or four hours, that was really good. So that's one of my goals. I try to write all my books so uh, somebody who's a pretty good reader can finish it on a cross-country flight. Most of your, at least the ones I've read, most of your books uh, have been kind of the uh, big idea books that you're trying to get very practical and you're teaching about how to implement things. What what would you say is your? I mean, you were talking about it. Uh, your style. You, you're talking about short chapters, just real clear and concise. Um, hey, I I I like to have a powerful idea that is succinctly put. Uh, I think in sound, but my preaching is the same way. Uh, people tell me that. Uh, I'm, I come across as very biblical with ahas, ah things they hadn't seen before, that are put in, in memorable sound bites. And that's pretty much it. I, I live for the aha. Like, it's so blindingly obvious, how did I miss it? Not like, uh, so it's a little bit, people jokingly say, Larry, you write and speak with a little bit of, you have heard, but I tell you. And when I do that well, I get no pushback because it's so blindingly obvious. Like, how did I miss this? And so both for preaching and writing, that's kind of my goal. I want to show people something they maybe haven't seen before rather than just repeat a cliche they've heard a million times with a new illustration of it. Uh, but it's, it's got to be blindingly obvious. Uh, I, I, I don't want to get in a dogfight on it. If it's not that clear, then maybe it's not that important. Do you show up in your books? Yeah. Definitely. And, and it depends on which book it is, but I, I always use some personal stories. I, I, I don't major on personal stories. And again, I think you should always write like, like, uh, like you like to read. And I don't like to read books that have too much of the personal story in it. It's like, dude, how important do you think you are? So you're just uh, trying to get the idea out there. Yeah, but I'm personal. I'm, I'm self revealing a little vulnerable in my preaching and I am in my writing. So, you know, I will tell like the beginning of sticky teams, you know, I tell the story of the first three years at North coast where we grew by one and what went wrong and where I made my mistakes. 
But as the book goes on, I also tell other people's stories because I don't think people are that interested in me. But you got to be real. Otherwise, you're just a reporter. The books I don't like are research books by people who have studied all the growing churches but haven't grown a church themselves. Hmm. And again, that's personal. There's still a place for the kind of books I don't like. But since we're talking about writing, I always tell a writer, figure out the things you like to read, and that's probably the kind of writer you ought to be. Don't ask what sells. Ask what you like to read. I think I heard you say once that uh, the favorite book that you've written, your favorite book uh, uh, that you've written, was the probably the worst-selling book. Yep. It was, yep. uh, I think it was called The Contrarian's Guide to Spirituality. No, Oh, knowing yep. God. And yep. is, has it been rebranded? And uh, let's talk about that process. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the first book that happened when I went back to writing after the 13 years. So after 13, 15 years, whatever it was, off the uh, radar screen, nobody knew who I was. Because of starting Vineo Venues, because of our servant-based small groups and church, a good number of pastors knew who I was, but no one in the pews knew who I was. So what that meant was I'm writing a trade book. That's what it's called professionally, you know, to general audience, not leaders. And at the same time that book came out, uh, I believe Greg Rochelle and Mark Batterson and I were supposed to be the lead books for Multnomah when it was in Oregon. And they sold uh, and then moved to Colorado Springs. And only two, I believe only two employees went. So those three books were dead on arrival. Mark Batterson did a fabulous job. I think it's called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowing Day of self-marketing. And I mean that as a huge compliment to him. Yeah. He's very good at, at understanding how to get his stuff out. But Craig and I weren't. And so both our books were dead on arrival. They had no pre-sale. They had no marketing, nothing. And uh, the irony is that's my favorite book because it's really the whole philosophy of discipleship I have. Now, it is being re-released in February of 2018 on its 10th year anniversary. I've added two chapters to it, uh, updated uh, the cover and just kind of a, a new push because they felt like uh, the uh, publisher that uh, I have uh, enough people who read my stuff who've not read that. I mean, it's maybe sold 22,000 at its most, uh, that there's a whole new audience for it. So I'm really excited. We just uh, did a video curriculum with Right Now Media on it. Uh, but yeah, that sometimes happens to an author. What you think is your best and most important, the world out there has never heard of. Are you? Uh, did you retitle that book, or are you just using the um, uh, we, subtitle as the main? Yeah, a little, little way publishing works. When a book is retitled, it's because it didn't sell well. <laughs> okay. And so they retitle it the subtitle Spirituality for the Rest of Us. But those who know me know I'm somewhat contrarian. Again, you've heard, but wait a minute, let's take a second look. And so right now they love the title Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. So as it's re-released, they're going back to the original. Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, subtitled Spirituality for the Rest of Us. And I'm excited. Anybody who follows my blog, uh, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, they'll hear me hitting it a lot when it comes out because uh, I think the information is pretty important. There's a lot of pastors out there that uh, want to write. Um, a lot of them, they, they, they mostly probably want to take some of their content in, in from their sermons or other things that they've taught before and turn those into books. Um, but what would you say and lessons or encouragements uh, to those pastors who are interested in publishing? 
Well, first of all, you got to go back to why am I interested in it? Is it because I think I'll be more important? That's a bad reason. Is it because I'll feel better about myself? That's a bad reason. Is it because I want to influence people in this particular area? That's a great reason. And then you have to look in the mirror and be honest. Am I a weekend uh, warrior or I, do I have potential to play in the majors? Am I a lifetime minor leaguer? Uh, all of those, you can play baseball all those different ways. That's great. Uh, but the, the one who is a weekend warrior and dreams of being a uh, playing in the majors, all they're setting themselves up is for disappointment. A couple of things for pastors is there is not much of a market for your sermons. You know, I mean, think about it. The best known pastors, there's not much market for their sermons. They have a maybe a couple of books that are on their sermons or whatever. But within your own platform, there might be a very big market for that. Uh, I am very, uh, very pleased that what used to be called uh, vanity publishing, Mm -hmm. self-publishing, is now uh, uh, accepted. Uh, And part of the reason is in in self-publishing, you used to have to print and buy a whole bunch of books. And it really was vanity. You're buying all this stuff, open your friends and congregation will buy them. Well, now due to a thing called print on demand. Uh, and or say Amazon's create space or whatever, you can self-publish a book that maybe won't have a wide audience, but still will have an important audience. And that's what I encourage pastors, uh, people who come to me all the time and don't have that platform already or don't have that experience, but really want to write. I go self-publish it. It's a, it's a viable option. In fact, uh, uh, Unity Factor is self-published now because I own the rights when that company went under. And uh, there was a small little book that didn't have an, I didn't want to, well, let me step back. In writing, you write to a word count. It has to do with the size of the spine and authors, uh, publishers, that's an important thing. And I had a book, Mission Creep, that I didn't want to put a bunch of extra garbage in just so I could get to spine size. So I wrote the book and self-published it. And it's there on Amazon and people look me up, you know, buy some of them. And it's a, it's a great thing because I felt it was an important message. But I didn't feel like the world out there was, uh, you know, begging for a uh, 45,000 word on it. They wanted about 25 to 30. So that's what I encourage people to do. It's not second class. Yeah, uh, You're still playing ball. I'm a self-published uh, author myself, and I'm... I really love the the community and what you do. And one of the reasons is what you mentioned before about the Christian publishing world and the platform stuff. Um, so much of the, the who gets published today, it seems like the Christian publishers want the person that's going that they could they could also push on a stage at a conference or promote some other way or if they if they have their own platform it's not about the the thoughts or ideas or the words it seems like it's the the marketing side of it uh, is is the main thing what are your thoughts about that on the the christian publishing well, world that's only partially true i mean think of books like the shack that were you know tiny little things and then just exploded or uh, that one just popped in my mind for some reason, but there's, you know, other examples like that of unknown, uh, uh, Donald Miller, I think was unknown and had a little book and then suddenly blew up. Uh, so they're, they're more than willing to take a risk on great ideas, but here's the problem. They are a business. So if they publish your or my great idea that nobody out there buys, uh, then they go bankrupt. 
Uh, I mean, there is a salary that has to be paid to a proofreader, to an editor. Uh, they have to pay rent on the building they're in. Uh, they have to publish all this stuff. So I think sometimes there are two things publishers get unfairly criticized for by authors. One is, well, you only want a platform. Well, of course, because it's called a business. And uh, they're, they're not in the business of uh, collecting money for you or me. Uh, so our idea can be done freely. And, and that's what vanity and, and self-publishing is all about. If I believe in an idea enough, then I publish it. And the other thing to get criticized for is not marketing it enough. When a book doesn't do well, uh, the authors complain. But uh, even as I said, the one book of mine that did you know, relatively poorly, uh, still, Mark Batterson proved it's, it's not all the publisher. He did a great job uh, getting the word out on his book. And at the end of the day, on my own books, I'm my major uh, major PR person. They're just helping. So if it doesn't go well, uh, it's more at my feet than their feet. So tell us about what uh, project you're working on. What is your late latest project? Well, right now I am taking a breather because I just finished two things. Uh, the update of Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God and then shooting some major video uh, curriculum for Right Now Media that will be coming out. And then the the book that was start to finish that will come out in April is called Lead Like a Shepherd. And uh, what happens for me is after I finish one, I want a break. Uh, and so I have no idea what the next book will be. Either a publisher will pitch me. Uh, an idea. And when they do that, they're usually starting with Larry, what are you into? Not their uh, outside idea. Or I'll wake up suddenly really excited about something, or I could go two or three years and just go, wow, I'm glad to have a breather. Um, but my write, boss, it'll be six you, months or so before I start writing again. Do you write in uh, in seasons? I know Mark Batterson has said that he, he has a season that he writes in, and it's just, you know, he, he tries to complete a book a year or something like that in a certain season, it starts and finishes it. What, what? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very opposite of that. Like Mark preaches off a manuscript. Okay. And so if he's shooting a, a curriculum video, I was talking right now, media guys, he does some for them. Uh, they could do two shoots shots and they'll be exactly the same because he's off a manuscript. If we do two shots of me for eight or 10 minutes, they'll be generally the same, but pretty different. And so that's often for writers is just a reflection of their personality. Remember, I'm an extrovert. I do not write to figure out what I think or to get in touch. And so there's no way I have seasons. I have deadlines. I, I will never write uh, a, an, another thing beyond about four or 500 words uh, if I don't have a magazine, journal, or publishers for because I don't write for fun. So, like Mark would say, and I, I've heard him talk about this and uh, some others, they would say that they're actually writers first and, and pastors and preachers and leaders, you know, second. I'd and agree. For, for you, you would, you're the opposite. You, you, you totally, write because people... Totally the opposite. I've never written and then... I've, I've actually never written a galley and tried to sell it to, you know... Uh, to publishers and hey what do you think I've always written because I was asked to write and if you don't ask me to write and give me a deadline it probably is not happening and uh, you've been prolific that's uh, 10 books 11 books even for a person that hates writing that's pretty good <laughs> well I wouldn't say I hate writing I don't like once I'm in the process there's certain things you do that you enjoy 
You know, uh, I'm sure people who write first and preach second, once they get into the preparation of the preaching, enjoy the process. But if given druthers, they'd pick up a, a keyboard and start going. That's that's just a difference. Yeah. Like I enjoy the process when I know you've asked me to do it. You've got an audience and this is important. Then it's like, oh, OK. For me, I'm uh, I'm very similar to you. Uh, probably have the same uh, similar Myers-Briggs. I'm an extrovert, and one of the reasons I, I've been writing is that I'm, I'm actually a frustrated preacher because I feel like um, my sermons are about 70% of a good idea, and I, I had, to leave, had to cut so much stuff, I didn't have enough time to develop it fully, and I just feel like I, I need another shot to get it out there. That's kind of one, one of the reasons I started writing is like I, there's such a gem there, but I, I didn't have time, and then next week I'm on to something else. So that's one. What, that's one of the reasons I, why I started writing. Yeah, um, and like for and for me, that's a little of why I write. Like Sticky Church, I've spoken on small groups, you know, because our model is so uh, so effective everywhere. But it was fun to go. Hey, this is a really uh, tight explanation of how they work and why they're important. Far far better than anyone talk. I ever given in my life, which always leaves lots of stuff out. That's interesting. Uh, because I've been to your conferences. Uh, it's, they're amazing. What can you accomplish through books that a, a, even a long workshop can't accomplish? Well, one, people can go back to it again. They can pass it on. So you get a much broader audience than just the people who hear you. And, um, what happens to, I think most of us, if I were to take the conferences I speak at and when I go, I try to listen to the other people and stuff. Um, there are lots of good things I hear, but there's only one or two that uh, I reflect upon later just because life happens. But with a book, you're marking it up, underlining it. You decide to make some changes in light of it. You pull it out again. You look at it. So it just has, uh, I think, a, a deeper influence and impact on, on more people. Um, so uh, we we go through a process of learning that's uh, the first one is, wow, that's new and exciting, but doesn't change us. Then later on, we hear it again and go, oh, yeah, that was so good. And then we go, oh, yeah, I'm a little bored. And then we go, I know it without you even being present. And it's only at that fourth stage that something's known. And writing books helps take the information beyond the, wow, that was such a good talk. I, I love listening to this person talk all the way to, no, I know this even when they're not around. And that, I think, is the goal of preaching and everything we do. Two last questions uh, for, for you, Larry. I'm just kind of uh, interested in seeing what uh, what books have been the made the biggest impact in your life? And then, if, and then uh, secondly, um, what encouragement or advice would you leave for Christians who are just getting started in this writing process? Maybe it's sure. a warning. Sure. So first, what uh, influences, what books, what influence you? Very few spiritual books influence me because uh, most of my spiritual journey has been influenced by uh, either reading the Bible itself and or more uh, expository type preaching and learning auditorily. So I really, I've had a lot of books that spiritually taught me, oh, a little thing here, a little thing there, but I don't have any where I went, wow, that was mind-blowing. Um, that's just not the way I learn. Uh, but uh, when it comes to more leadership stuff, early Peter Drucker, 
Uh, I happen to like economics a lot, and though his stuff is obtuse and a little hard to work through, was mind-blowing. Some early Ken Blanchard uh, type of stuff. So in the secular marketplace, uh, I found a lot of things uh, that made sense. And I'm the kind of guy, if my plumbing's broke, I don't care if you have a fish on your truck or not. I just want to know you can fix the plumbing. And growing up in dysfunctional churches, uh, that's where I began to realize that functional leadership makes it a lot easier to have true discipleship. Uh, And so uh, I had just never been exposed to outside stuff. All my degrees were in theology. I'd been teaching the Bible and Bible studies since I was 19 years old. So early on in my 20s, I had a pastor who encouraged me that all truth is God's truth that Jethro was the one, you know, one night old in the Lord who told Moses how to organize the children of Israel. Uh, And so those books were very, very influential in uh, my early days. Great. Lastly, what uh, word of advice or encouragement or warning would you uh, give to someone who's just starting this writing journey? Well, I'm assuming probably almost anybody who's just starting the writing journey is doing it because they feel compelled to write. So they're probably, by definition, more introverted. And so at that point, I would say uh, write to find yourself. And then if you want to share it on a broader level, uh, figure out what your voice is. Uh, Don't try to write like somebody else. Write like you. And you'll probably figure out what your voice is by finding out who it is that most influences you. And, and look at how they write. Uh, are they long and obtuse? Are they short and pithy? Uh, because uh, the prophet can only share the prophet's message, not someone else's. Uh, uh, early on in, uh, as a pastor, I listened to some of the best known preachers and they messed up my preaching. Because the only reason I really listened to them was because everybody else was, not because that resonates with my soul. Uh, and then I learned to go, no, listen to the people who resonate with my soul. And they will help me be a better me. I think the same thing is true in, in, in what we read and how we write. Wow. A true contrarian. I think uh, <laughs> what your advice and your words are probably uh, the opposite of what I've heard. So uh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, one last question. Uh, Dodgers game seven. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? They gonna it's, do it? It's gonna, it's gonna be a crapshoot. Just rolling the dice, man. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm it's nervous. Like the, it's like the last round of a heavyweight. <laughs> I'm nervous. Well, thank you for your time, Larry. Uh, your your words have been uh, very insightful for me, and so thank you for coming on our show. Glad I could help. Take care. Thanks for listening today. We hope you found it helpful. If you like the show, please help us spread the word by subscribing to the podcast or by leaving a rating or review. You can connect with me on my website, tndone.net, where I have lots of helpful resources available to you for free. My website is tndone.net. That's spelled T-H-I-E-N-D-O-A-N.net. See you next time. And remember, you can change the world with your words.